Well, good morning. You know, I'm still uh, processing, still a little bit in shock to hear that Ryan was not a perfect child. I'm, I'm working through it. It's blowing up my worldview. Uh, we are going to be talking about God's discipline today, and I want to start with just an informal survey, nothing scientific here, just show of hands. I'm not recording this. There's not a prize. Just show of hands. How many of you, when you look back uh, over your childhood, over your adolescent years, would say, you, you get to self-select here, right? You would say, from your perspective, you were a compliant child. How many would say that you were a compliant? No compliant. One. We have one compliant. Oh, my. We've got a bunch of rebels in the room. Okay. Uh, compliant meaning, huh? Oh, you were falling. Okay. All right. Yeah, that was my dynamic growing up, too. How many of you, when you look back over your childhood, your adolescent years, would, would say, would categorize, self-categorize yourself as a strong-willed child? All right, and, and the rest of you, I don't know where you fall in there. You just don't want to play my, my survey today, I guess. That's fine. It's raining. You're grumpy. It, we'll, we'll be all right. Uh, discipline was something for me growing up uh, that at times was, for me, a struggle. Um, my, my parents used to tell people, this true story, my parents used to tell people that Dr. Dobson's book, The Strong-Willed Child, was written about me. They told people that. They said that out loud, that Dr. Dobson wrote that book about, about me, which I don't think is very nice. <laughs> my, my, my sister, Michelle, however, was very compliant. Uh, she, uh, she was one that never needed to be disciplined unless she was involved in whatever I was involved with. Uh, anyway, so discipline f- for me, too, was a little strange at times when I was growing up. Uh, my dad, when he would discipline me, uh, he tended to be a little bit more harsh. You know, I grew up in the era of the, the belt and the spoon. I grew up in that era. And uh, so that was kind of my experience. And the other thing was when I was getting in trouble, I was told, look at me in the eye. Right? Don't, I would, my, the natural tendency when you're getting in trouble when you're a kid is maybe to look down. You don't want to look at me when I'm talking to you. Does that sound familiar with some of you? you know, look at me when I'm talking to you. Uh, and no sass back, no talk back. It just, you just look back. So that's what I was, that's what I was trained. That's how I was con- conditioned to uh, behave during discipline. So anyway, that got a little sideways on me whenever I was in elementary school one day. Uh, we were coming back from, uh, in Roaring Spring, they had the gym across the street. And we would walk across and then back over to the school. And honestly, I, I can't remember what I did. I just remember that I was getting in trouble from the, the teacher's aide or whatever that was escorting us back across the street to the school. She was mad about something. And, and so she was wanting to communicate that to me. And I was in trouble. And again, remember my training. Uh, so when I, when I was receiving her discipline, this is what my face looked like. <laughs> Just a statue, stone face, no response whatsoever. And I think she was looking for some type of response and she wasn't getting it. And that made, I could tell, it seemed like she was getting more angry. And I didn't understand why she was getting, I'm, I'm listening, I'm looking at you, Uh, So anyway, I got home that day, and uh, I got in trouble again. Apparently, this teacher called my mom and said, your son got in trouble today, and when I was trying to discipline him, uh, he looked at me with, that was her word, defiance in his eyes. 
Okay. And that's when I first realized there's something wrong with my face. I don't, I don't know how to fix it. There's something, there's something inherently wrong with my face. It doesn't always communicate what I'm actually feeling or thinking. Uh, so if, if you've ever been on the receiving end of my face and you didn't like it, I apologize. I don't know how to fix that. That's when I first realized it. You know, this morning, we're going to read the next, uh, next part of Jonah's story. The part of Jonah's story where strong-willed Jonah experienced the discipline of God. And as we read chapter 2 together, I, I'm going to ask you to think about your own response, your own reaction to God's discipline in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible teaches us that God disciplines his children the Bible teaches us that God disciplines those he loves. And we'll look at that passage later. But I just want you, as, as, we, as we dive into chapter 2, to go into it with an open heart, an honest heart about your, your own tendencies towards your reaction, your responses to the discipline of God in your life. Here's why. Because how we respond to God's discipline will determine what we get out of it. Let me say it again. How we respond to God's discipline will determine what we get out of it. Please join me in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. The context, last week, Jonah was thrown overboard into the sea, the angry sea. And And in verse 17, we didn't read it, but we'll read it now. The Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. We get to chapter 2, verse 1, and it says that Jonah prayed what we're about to read to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. Now, he didn't have parchment or paper or a laptop inside the fish, so he he didn't write down or type out his his prayer uh, from in the fish. So this is, what we're going to read is a psalm that Jonah wrote later, the psalm of thanksgiving that Jonah recorded uh, later as he looked back on what he prayed. So he's communicating, recording for us what he prayed as he uh, reflects back on his time in the fish, but it's in the form of a psalm. It's written in the form of a psalm of thanksgiving. So just understand that that's the, the kind of the, the way that it is laid out. So if some of the language looks somewhat poetic, that's, that's why. So this is his prayer, a psalm of thanksgiving from inside the fish. Verse 2, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. If you have a different version, I have the New Living Translation. If you have a different version, and it has the, the Hebrew word, Sheol, uh, means the land of the dead. The New Living Translation has just gone ahead and translated that Hebrew word for you. Uh, but if you have the word Sheol, that's what it means. It's the Hebrew word for the land of the dead. The, the idea that uh, Jonah is communicating here is he believed, he was convinced he was going to die. That's, pretty, that's a pretty serious situation. He was convinced he was going to die. And notice, even in that moment, he cries out to God for help. That's what he says. I called out to you. 
from the land of the dead. Now, he's not dead, obviously. Uh, he's, he's still alive when he, when he says this. So he's convinced he's going to die. He cries out to the Lord for help. Verse 3. You, who's he talking to? He's talking to God. You threw me into the ocean depths. Wait a minute. I thought the sailors threw him overboard. Well, physically the sailors threw him over, overboard, but he's in this situation because of the storm that God brought. Read on. Uh, As I sank down to the heart of the sea, the mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Jonah recognized that, that God was the one who was disciplining him. He understood that. This was not just Jonah having a very bad, rotten, terrible day. Jonah was trying to run away from God, And God pursued him. It didn't have to be this way. This isn't how God uh, started the the, the communication. He didn't start the communication with Jonah with the storm. He started the communication with his word. And Jonah ignored that. But God pursued him. And now he's disciplining him. Verse 4. This vivid description then of his descent... And, and what he was experiencing when he thought he was going to die. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. A lot of Bible scholars believe this is uh, his way of expressing, I'm, I'm going to die. I know I'm about to die, but I'm going to see you in heaven. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates lock shut forever. Just another vivid way of describing when, when, when he dies, he knows that's, that's it. He's not coming back from that. So it's a vivid description of his crisis, and, and he cries out to God for, for help in this, in this moment. And I don't need you to raise your hand. I don't need you to even share this with your neighbor, but have you ever cried a prayer like that? Have you ever cried out to God for help like that? In, in, in the same sense that Jonah, he knows he's the reason for this mess. He knows that... He's, this whole thing is self-imposed. I wonder if you've ever cried out a prayer, God, I I know I'm the one at fault here. I I know I'm the one who made this mess and and, and life is sideways because of my poor choices. But you're my only hope. I understand I don't deserve your intervention here. I, I don't deserve a second chance. I get that, but you're the only hope I have and I'm asking you for help. I wonder if anyone can relate to the fact that, that Jonah, in, in this situation, think about how Jonah, it, it, took, it took a crisis to get Jonah's attention. It didn't have to be like this. He could have obeyed God from the beginning, but it took a crisis to get his attention. I think if we're being honest with, with ourselves, that's probably true of us at different times in our lives. I think there's probably times in our lives when we had to learn the hard way. 
We had to learn the hard way that, that God is in charge and we're not. That God is always right and we're not. That his ways are not always going to line up with what we want or the way that we would do it. And that sometimes causes tension in our faith. Maybe, maybe our, our stubborn, hard-headed arrogance causes us to decide, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do because I know more than God or I know better than God. And maybe we wouldn't express it in those words, but sometimes that's what our heart attitude reflects. Well, think about that. If, if that sometimes is your heart attitude, if that's my heart attitude, how, how should God respond to that? Should God just ignore it? Should, should God think it's cute? Oh, Mark, you little rascal. <laughs> At it again, how adorable. Well, that certainly wouldn't line up with the holiness of God, would it? So we, we, we know that God is holy, we know that God is just, and, and, and we might think, well, because God is holy and just, well, shouldn't we then just expect God to, to squish us with his giant thumb? That's what we deserve. And yet, God is holy and just, and he's also love. So instead, the love of God pursues us. The love of God comes after us and tries to capture our hearts. The rest of verse 6 says, but God. <laughs> I love that. We see where Jonah is. We, we see how serious the situation is. But the end of verse 6 says, but you, O Lord my God, but God. How many times do we need that, those two words in our life story? This is, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on in my life, and it's not headed in a great direction, but God. But you, O Lord my God, you snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Jonah is fully aware that it is God who spared his life. And I just, I read that and it is so encouraging to me. Because there are times when we make a mess, our, our poor choices are the reason we're in the mess. And it's easy for us to think that the mess we're in, and we're the ones who put us, ourselves there, that that disqualifies us from God's love. That we have no right to ask for God's help, no right to ask for God's mercy. But Jonah's story proves to us that God will meet us where we are, even in our self-imposed mess. When we cry out to him, he will meet us where we are because he's been pursuing us. This summer, when my wife and my daughter Faith and I, we went to the adult conference for our fellowship. And one of the things they had at the conference one evening was a concert from Cochrane and Company. And uh, I didn't know who that was. And we got to the concert and, and started listening to his songs. Oh, yeah, I, I know these songs. I just didn't know that he was the one who sang them. There was uh, at least three or four songs that have been on the radio and really, really good songs. One of those songs is entitled Parking Lot, and it's on the radio right now. It's pretty popular. It's really a good song. 
And he told the story at the concert uh, behind the song Parking Lot, and it's, it's the story of him as a young man being in his car in his college-age years, being in his car, he's in a parking lot, it's a Tuesday night, and he, he describes it as the lowest point in his life. He was taught the truth of, of God growing up, but he had been running away from God for quite a while. Sound familiar? Sounds like Jonah. Maybe, maybe it sounds like your story, but he says he, he had hit the bottom. He had hit the bottom, and he prayed out desperately for God to show up and to rescue him. And he said God met him in that moment as a, quote, wayward child. God didn't wait for him to get his act together. God didn't wait for him to come to church and, and meet him here. Now, God meets people here. Don't think that he doesn't. When, when we have that invitation at the end of service for you to come and meet Jesus and, and, and pray to receive Christ as your Savior, uh, certainly God and Jesus will meet us here. When we pray together, there's something going on in your life. There's something really hard. You just want to pray with another believer, and we pray together. God meets us here, yes. But God also meets us on the outside of these walls because he loves us and he pursues us and we cry out to him, he will meet us where we are. Verse 8 then describes this, uh, this blessing of God. And I just, before, I, before I read it, I just want you to think about how God pursues you, that he wants he, he, he wants you to turn to him. He's not, he's not hiding from you. He's not hiding from us in the forest. He's not trying to stay hidden. He's not ignoring us, hoping that we don't sneak up on him. Find me if you can. He pursues us. And yes, he may allow us. We look at the, at the end of verse 7. He may allow us to experience difficulty and crisis so that we may feel like we're drowning, we may feel like we are without hope, but the purpose of this is to remind us that our hope is in God. Verse 8, those who worship false gods turn their backs on, they, they walk away from all God's mercies. And you might have a different word there than mercy. You might have loving kindness. You might have the word grace. The, the, the Hebrew word is hesed, H-E-S-S-E-D, hesed. And the word hesed, when it's translated into English, it's not just a one-for-one. One. It's not like hesed only means one thing. The, the Hebrew uh, word has uh, the meaning of loving kindness with it. It would have been understood as grace. It would have been understood as grace in the original language. And, and the way I would describe it to you is this, what, what Jonah is saying in verse 8. Let's, let's imagine that you have a, a marriage and your spouse is loving and kind and faithful and loyal. And, 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 and you decide that you're going to walk away from that loving kindness and loyalty and, and, and steadfast love. You're going to abandon that, that relationship. That's the picture that's being painted when we walk away from the hesed of God because we're chasing after something else. 
And Jonah is reminded of this, that those who, who trust in idols, they, they abandon their source of confidence, the source of everything that we truly desire and want, that satisfaction, contentment, the steadfast love. He is the source of all that we need. And we chase after something other than him, we abandon the source of everything that we truly desire. Verse 9, he says, But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Jonah was truly thankful for God's mercy, truly thankful that God spared his life. But as the story unfolds, we're going to find out that he did not have a change of heart. He did not have a change of mind towards the Ninevites. He was compliant, but he wasn't changed. And I find it fascinating to see this real-life tension between Jonah's psalm of thanksgiving and then how the story continues, how the story unfolds. Jonah gave thanks to God from inside the big fish because he's truly grateful to still be breathing. That God rescued him. He didn't have to wait until he was on dry land to be thankful that he's breathing. But his fundamental beliefs about idolatry are still very strong. He still believes that Nineveh deserves only God's judgment. He still believes that there's, there's no room for mercy, there's no room for forgiveness towards them that is deserved. And so there's this, there's this tension where Jonah is truly grateful to God, but there's also something in him that is defiant. He's going to go to Nineveh because God has made it pretty clear he has to. He's going to comply, but it doesn't mean that Jonah has changed. And I think it brings up a really interesting question, a question about God's purpose in discipline. Why does God discipline us? Is it something more than just a demand for compliance? Is God only interested that we, that, that we comply, or does God want to see in us a changed heart? Is God's discipline just about forcing us to be uh, people that are good little rule followers, or does God want something more than that? Is God, in his discipline, creating within us a desire for God's has said, a desire to experience God's loving kindness and steadfast love and mercy in our everyday lives. See, how, how we respond to God's discipline will determine what we get out of it. To help answer the question, you probably get a sense from where I'm going with it, right? But, but to answer the question biblically, uh, let's go to, we're done in Jonah for today, let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 5, where the writer of Hebrews encourages us to remember the words of God when he said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, 
Remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? Now pause. Uh, we have seen that, right? And I'm sure it existed then where you would have bad fathers, bad parents that don't discipline their kids and they're wild and it's not good. So he's not making the point that it, it never happens. He's making the point that that doesn't happen with a good father. When you have a, a good parent, when you have a, a good father, there's discipline involved. That's the, the idea of that, of that rhetorical question. If God does not discipline you as he does all of his children, it, it means that you are illegitimate. You're not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? Our, our, our earthly dads did the best they could. I mean, like, like I said, grew up in an era of the, the, of the spanking, and sometimes that probably went too far. And then there was an overcorrection uh, in the next generation where, you know, we, we, uh, we don't discipline at all and we give out trophies for things that don't deserve, you know, you understand there was an overcorrection, overcorrection at one point in parenting and it's like a free-for-all. But people are doing the best that they can. But God's not like that. God, God always disciplines for the right reason in the right way, in the right amount, for the right amount of time, God is always perfect in his discipline. Verse 10, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us. So that we, here's the reason, why does God discipline us? So that we might share in his holiness. He's trying to produce something in us. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. Yeah, it's painful. But afterward, here again, there's purpose. There will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So let's just ask some questions of the text. Who does God discipline? Well, according to this, God disciplines those he loves. Everyone he accepts as his child, if you have trusted Jesus as your forgiver of sin, the sa your Savior from hell, the leader of your life, here's what happens spiritually. You are adopted into the family of God. You become, God sees you as his son. God sees you as his daughter, and he loves you. This is why God disciplines us, because he loves us. Jesus said the same thing in, in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. What we have to understand about the discipline of God is that God loves us too much to just let us continue in our rebellion. To just let us continue in our disobedience without at least trying to stop us. Now, you may be headstrong, strong-willed, stubborn, and you're just going to keep plowing uh, ahead, and God's trying to put the brakes on and trying to do things uh, to, to impede your progress toward destruction. It won't force you, but God's doing those things, disciplining us because he knows where sin leads to messes and destruction. And so we should be very thankful for the discipline of God. I think back 
again, this whole subject matter has got me kind of thinking about my childhood, my adolescence. And when I look back, I see that I had a lot of experience with discipline. A lot. I had discipline from my parents. I had discipline from my grandparents. Discipline from the teachers at school. Discipline from teachers here at, at church. Discipline from the manager at Kmart one time. Okay, two times. Did you know, just FYI, a little, little service announcement for you here. Did you know that store managers do not like it whenever you, uh, whenever you hide inside of those circular clothing racks and scare people? They don't like that. They, they get complaints, and then uh, they don't tend to appreciate that. The, the other thing I, I don't, maybe you didn't know this, uh, store managers at least the ones at Kmart, uh, they don't like it whenever you get a spool of yarn, you know how the yarn's like in this, right, and you pull the string out. So they don't like it when you tie that to your sister's belt loop and then see if she can get to the other side of the store before anyone says anything. They don't like that. By the way, you absolutely can get to the other end of the store with, with one spool. It's, it's plenty, plenty left over. And the reason I know they don't like it, because of discipline, because I learned that through discipline. We should be thankful when we are confronted with our sin. We should be thankful when we are confronted with our disobedience, confronted with our bad attitudes. Why? So that we don't continue down this path unimpeded towards destruction. See, how we respond to God's discipline will determine what we get out of it. And there's really only two responses. And we find them here in Hebrews. The first response is that of despising. Don't make light of. You might, you might have in there the phrase, don't despise. Don't fight. Don't resist. God's discipline. And that's certainly an option that sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes we choose that response to God's discipline. Why? Well, some of it's just simple pride. I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. I couldn't possibly be wrong. That doesn't make any sense. Well, if, if your attitude, if your behavior, if the words coming out of your mouth, if these things don't match up with the standards of God's word, yeah, we're wrong. We're in the wrong. And sometimes pride gets in the way. And that can be hard. Sometimes we respond this way to God's discipline because we don't like what God's doing. Or maybe we don't understand what God is doing. And so we feel this, this tension in our faith over the difficulties, the discomforts, the uncertainties that we are experiencing. We don't like it. We don't understand what God is up to. And so that tension can sometimes create in us this... this uh, uh, despising or this mistrust of God's purposes or, or his love. A couple pages later uh, in James chapter 1, James reminds us to consider it pure joy. He says, when, uh, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Why? Because you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, and, and so let it grow. When your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect. You'll be complete, needing nothing. The idea that he's communicating there is 
that when we go through God's discipline, we go through these trials and troubles in life, God is doing something in our lives if we'll receive it. That's what it says. So let it grow. Understand that God's teaching us something, that he wants us to learn. He wants us to mature. He wants us to grow beyond where we are right now. So how do we get to a place where we can see God this way, where we can see our lives this way? Well, through the other option. So option one in response to God's discipline is despise, resist, fight, ignore. Or the option, the the second option that we see here is surrender, submit. Understanding that God is interested in so much more than just compliance. God wants to change our hearts. He wants us to obey him because we love him, because we believe that he loves us, and we want to experience the hesed, the loving kindness and faithful loyalty of God in our lives every day. As the poster child for strong-willed children everywhere, I think when I look back over my experience in life, there, there was a change in my heart. Compliance was demanded in, in, in the home I grew up in. There was, there, was no, uh, there was no question about that. Compliance was demanded. But there came a point in time through maturity uh, over, over my lifetime that it became something, the discipline of my parents became something different than just a demand for compliance from my perspective. And I think the change happened, the attitude uh, began to change when I understood just how much my parents loved me and that that was the reason that they were disciplining me. When I understood that they wanted good for my life, when, when I understood that, that, uh, that my actions or attitudes or words, that this defiance, whatever it was, that that was hurting them. And when I understood how much they loved me and really believed that, and I wanted to love them back, well, well how do I love them back? Well, it's certainly not by uh, causing them tears. It's, it's probably by, by doing things that would make them smile. And so there was a different desire in me. Believing that their discipline came from a place of love, a desire for my good, it changed my heart. It, it created a desire to love them back. And if this is what we believe about God, if this is what we believe about God's discipline, then the result will be we will learn from it. We will mature from it. We will see a change of desire in us, a, a desire to live a righteous life, not just for the sake of being good little rule followers, but because we love God. We want to make him smile. We, we want to have this said close relationship with him. We don't want to walk away from that. We don't want to do anything that's going to pull us away from that. So it's a change of heart. See, how we respond to God's discipline will determine what we get out of it. If we despise God's discipline and fight it and resist it, eventually, if you want to put it into the terms of Jonah, we may very well drown in our sin. Or it's possible that we will comply 
but never experience a change at the heart level. And, and that eventually comes out in our attitudes of resentment. That's where that leads. Yeah, I'll do what you say, God, because I don't want you to blow up my life, but I don't like it. Does that sound like a heart attitude that is close to God? Either, either resisting or despising the discipline of God does not lead us towards experiencing God's has said, his loving kindness and grace. It doesn't lead us toward this righteous life that he wants to bless us with. But if we submit, if we surrender to God's discipline, we will experience this change of heart and mind that believes God loves us enough to discipline us. It will develop within us a heart of maturity. We'll learn from our mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall short. We're going to fail because we're imperfect people. But if we take the discipline of God in our lives and we are learning from it and we are maturing and growing, then we are moving towards God's loving kindness and steadfast love. Not just becoming some good little rule follower. And so I'll just end with a question. It's between you and God. How have you been responding to God's discipline in your life? How have you been responding to God as, as he has been pursuing your heart? I have in your notes a fill in the blank, and I put it this way on purpose. The fill in the blank says, this week I will respond to God's discipline with, and then there's a blank. And the reason I left it blank is this. The word that you put in there only makes sense, the, the rest of the sentence only makes sense if you put the word submit or surrender. The rest of the sentence says, and I'm going to ask him to change my heart. That sentence makes no sense if what you put in there is despise, fight, resist, ignore. I'll respond to God's discipline with, with fighting, fighting it, resisting it, ignoring it, and I'm going to ask God to change my heart. That sentence doesn't make any sense. It only, it only makes sense. The commitment, and this is just a simple action of commitment. It only makes sense if you're going to commit yourself to filling in the blank there with the word surrender or the word submit. And if you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus as your forgiver of sin, as your savior from hell, as the leader of your life, just understand that Jesus is inviting you into that relationship today. He proved that he is worthy of your trust when he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin. He proved that, that his sacrifice was enough when he rose from the dead. His victory over sin, his victory over death was proved in his resurrection. You're here today. You are here today because God has been pursuing your heart. That's why you're here. And so my, my challenge, my, my invitation is simply this. Stop running. God has been pursuing your heart. Stop running and allow him to meet you where you are.